Ezekiel chapter 14. Children, I know it can be hard uh, to listen to longer texts like this, but uh, there's actually a mention of Noah and Daniel and Job here in Ezekiel uh, 14. Uh, quite an interesting detail and thing that the Spirit of the Lord led uh, Ezekiel to write. Uh, but give your ears and your hearts to the Word of the Lord uh, from Ezekiel 14. It says, Now some of the elders of Israel came to me, Ezekiel, and sat before me. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, these men have set up their idols in their hearts and put before them that which causes them to stumble into iniquity. Should I let myself be inquired of at all by them? Therefore speak to them, Ezekiel, and say to them, Thus says the Lord God. Every one of the house of Israel who sets up his idols in his heart and puts before him what causes him to stumble into iniquity and then comes to the prophet, I, the Lord, will answer him who comes according to the multitude of his idols that I may seize the house of Israel by their heart because they are all estranged from me by their idols. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, repent. Turn away from your idols, turn your faces away from all your abominations. For anyone of the house of Israel or of the strangers who dwell in Israel, who separates himself from me and sets up his idols in his heart and puts before him what causes him to stumble into iniquity, then he comes and then comes to inquire, then comes to a prophet to inquire of him concerning me. I, the Lord, will answer him by myself. I will set my face against that man and make him a sign and a proverb, and I will cut him off from the midst of my people, and then you shall know that I am the Lord. And if the prophet is induced to speak anything, I, the Lord, have induced that prophet, and I will stretch out my hand against him and destroy him from among my people Israel, and they shall bear their iniquity. The punishment of the prophet shall be the same as the punishment of the one who inquired that the house of Israel may no longer stray from me, nor be profaned any more with all their transgressions, but that they may be my people, and I may be their God, says the Lord God. The word of the Lord came again to me, Ezekiel, saying, Son of man, when a land sins against me by persistent unfaithfulness, I will stretch out my hand against it. I will cut off its supply of bread. I will send a famine on it. And cut off man and beast from it. Even if these three men, here it is, Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, they would deliver only themselves by their righteousness, says the Lord God. If I cause wild beasts to pass through the land and they empty it and make it so desolate that no man may pass through because of the beasts, even though these three men were in it as I live, says the Lord God, they would deliver neither sons nor daughters, Only they would be delivered, and the land would be desolate. Or if I bring a sword on that land and say, Sword, go through the land, and I cut off man and beast from it, even though these three men were in it as I live, says the Lord God, they would deliver neither sons nor daughters, but only they themselves would be delivered. 
Or if I send a pestilence into that land and pour out my fury on it in blood and cut off from it man and beast, even though Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it as I live, says the Lord God, they would deliver neither son nor daughter. They would deliver only themselves by their righteousness. For thus says the Lord God, how much more it shall be when I send my four severe judgments on Jerusalem, the sword and famine and wild beasts and pestilence, to cut off man and beast from it. Yet behold, there shall be left in it a remnant who will be brought out, both sons and daughters. Surely they will come out to you, and you will see their ways and their doings. Then you will be comforted concerning the disaster that I brought upon Jerusalem, all that I brought upon it, and they will comfort you when you see their ways and their doings. And you shall know that I have done nothing without cause that I have done in it, says the Lord God. Amen. Uh, Ephesians 4, just six verses there. Ephesians 4, uh, just six verses there. Uh, Ephesians 4, 5, and 6 is where uh, Paul begins to lay out the commands in Ephesians. Verse, uh, chapters 1 to 3 is where he explains salvation. And then in verses 4, 5, and 6, or chapters 4, 5, and 6, excuse me, he begins to explain how we ought to live in light of that salvation. And we just read these six verses here. Ephesians 4, uh, verses 1 to 6. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, I beseech you, I beg you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Amen. And then Luke 14. You can park it here if you're following along. Luke 14, verses one I'm going to read through verse 14. Bulletin says 11. We'll read through verse 14. Luke 14, verses 1 through 14. Now it happened as Jesus went into the house of one of the rulers of the Pharisees, to eat bread on the Sabbath, that they watched him closely. Behold, there was a certain man before him who had dropsy, that is like a a swelling. Jesus answering spoke to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? But they kept silent. And he took the man with dropsy and healed him and let him go. And he answered them, saying, Which of you, having a donkey or an ox that has fallen into a pit, will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day? They could not answer him regarding these things. So he told a parable to those who were invited, when he noted how they chose the best places, saying to them, When you are invited by anyone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the best place, lest one more honorable than you be invited by him. And he who invited you and him, well, he may be, he'll come and say to you, give place to this man. Then 
you begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit down in the lowest place so that when he who invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, go up higher or go sit there. Then you will have glory in the presence of those who sit at the table with you. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Then he also said to him who invited him, when you give a dinner or a supper, Do not ask your friends, your brothers, your relatives, nor your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you back and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Things are often linked together by the Lord that we would not link together. One of those is how he links together in Titus 2 the character of wives with blasphemy. Another is in 1 Peter 3, uh, where he tells husbands that the way that they treat their wives will affect their prayers. And I would argue that another happens here in our text where Jesus uses a lesson on humility to teach about the Sabbath. Children, have your parents ever told you to be humble? Be humble. Ask your question. How do you define the word humble? It's one of those words, I would say, that's quite difficult to define. Maybe you say something like, I might not be able to tell you what it is, but I can tell you what it isn't. There are words like that, aren't there? Maybe you say that you can think of an example of someone that you know who's humble. And I would hazard a guess that you can certainly think of someone that you know isn't humble. Maybe you look at them every day in the mirror. To put it simply, being humble is being like Christ. Being humble is being like Christ. This is where it starts to sting a little. You hear that being humble is being like Christ, and you realize that being humble is not just something that's in your heart between you and the Lord. No one ever says, I am the most humble person I know, or look at how humble I am, unless they're being sarcastic. Being humble is a posture of the heart, but it produces certain actions. Jesus was perfectly pure in heart, and out of his heart, which was impossible to be marred with sin, comes certain actions. And these actions, the scripture describes over and over as humble. In our epistle, we read from Ephesians 4, Paul pleaded with us to walk worthy of our calling. Paul says, you Christians, live as Christians. Live in a worthy fashion. How do we do that? What words does Paul use to describe what it is to live worthily as Christians? Maybe you noticed the first word he used was lowliness. Then he said gentleness. Then he said long-suffering, which is another word for patience. 
He also said, bearing with one another in love. And then he said, endeavoring for unity that is had in the church and in our lives as Christians by the Spirit. Children, have you heard those words before? Lowliness, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another. What's another word for those? Humility. Humility or being humble. As Paul says in Philippians 2, esteeming others better than yourself and looking out for the interests of others. And in that text, Paul is calling the church not to some uh, virtues that weren't displayed in Christ. No, he actually turns around right after he says to call other, to uh, count others as more worthy than yourselves and to look out for their interests. He immediately turns and says... Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Let the mind that I've just referred to, this mind of humility, counting others better than yourselves and looking out for the interests of others, let that be in you just as it was in Christ, Paul says. The scriptures tell us repeatedly to be holy because the Lord is holy. We could also say very easily to be humble. Because the Lord is humble. And in our Luke reading, the Lord Jesus says, whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now Jesus is not saying they're flip sides of the same coin, that ultimately you end up being humbled and therefore ultimately exalted either way. The the humility, the humbling that comes from exalting yourself is not a good one. It's one like where someone tells you to get on your knees and you refuse and they kick your knees out from under you, so you will get on your knees. The exaltation that comes from humbling yourself is a great and glorious thing. But because of its placement, this Phrase by Jesus, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Because of its placement, we can see that it frames all 14 of these verses that we read in Luke 14. You can also see that the lesson that Jesus teaches by his parable is connected to the first six verses by comparing verse 1 and verse 7. This is where I bring in the point where I I mentioned earlier that Jesus connects things that we don't often connect. At verse 1, Jesus is going into the house of one of the rulers of the Pharisees to eat bread on the Sabbath. All right, going there to eat bread on the Sabbath, to have a meal is basically what that means. After he heals the man with dropsy, He tells a parable, did you notice what it said in verse 7? To those who were invited. Where were they invited? They were invited to the house of the the ruler of the Pharisees to share in the bread. You know, many people will read through the Gospels and not see these immediate connections in the language. What the Lord is doing is saying, here it is, this parable is responding to this issue. Verses 1 to 6 are, uh, or the issue in verses 1 to 6 are corrected by these two parables. So Jesus is going into the house. 
Then he's going to talk to those who are in the house. But what is it that the Lord Jesus connects in this text? He teaches them about Sabbath keeping by talking about humility and the resurrection. He teaches them about Sabbath keeping, or the fourth commandment, by talking about humility and the resurrection. What do those two things or those three things have to do together? The lesson on Sabbath keeping is very straightforward, quite simple. They were not keeping the Sabbath. Let me help you anytime you read these passages. So many sadly do this. Teach that Jesus broke the Sabbath. What? That Jesus canceled the Sabbath. Jesus did not do either of those things. He was taking off the extra things that had been added. He's actually fulfilling the law. He can't fulfill the law by breaking it. He steps right into the fourth commandment in the midst of the Pharisees and says, this is the true teaching. Only then, when you begin to see that, can you understand Hebrews 4 where it speaks about Jesus being or bringing the Sabbath, fulfilling the Sabbath. They were not keeping the Sabbath. Healing on the Sabbath was never a violation of the fourth commandment any more than picking up a loaf of bread and eating it would have been a violation of the Sabbath. Like so many times before, the Pharisees had added to the law to try and help them keep it. And they totally lost the law. Parents were guilty of this so often. Helping our kids keep the rules by adding rules, it doesn't help. It makes it worse. By acting the way they did about this man whom Jesus had healed, think about the implications. Just just step outside the passage for just a moment if you have to, or step inside of it, whichever move you need to make to understand. By acting the way that they did about this man whom Jesus had healed... They would rather him continue ill than receive healing. They were totally okay with keeping a man away from the remedy, keeping a man away from the Savior, if it meant that they got to keep their Sabbath, not the Sabbath. Does that sound familiar? Not being concerned if your actions on the Sabbath cause folks to be away from the remedy, that is Christ and his church, so long as your own preferences are kept up. It's a monster that we all have to deal with. I hope you see this very direct correlation. If you keep people from Christ and his church by your actions on the Sabbath or the Lord's Day, you're doing the same thing that the Pharisees were doing. You're committing the same actions, but in a a little more holy fashion. A more honest fashion, right? A more forgivable fashion of pleasant sin. Sabbath keeping is actually a super easy way to push back on the culture. You actually... Count others as more important than yourself when you don't cause them to work on the Sabbath. So you can actually free them up to come to the remedy. Whether, you come, whether they come or not is on them. 
But if you hinder them or join in hindering them from having the opportunity, how are you any better than the Pharisees? You're just changing the law to fit your own preferences. Jesus calls this a refusal of humility. And to make it even more ironic, they would more readily count an ox as greater than themselves than they would someone who is also an image bearer, one who is a fellow servant of God, as it were. You see, Jesus gets into the parable and he uses the exact same circumstances that they were in. He describes a feast. He doesn't always do this. You know, sometimes he totally shifts gears and uses an image that doesn't really have anything to do with the immediate context to teach something. But here he uses the exact circumstances they were in. The Pharisees are invited, but so are those who are more honorable than them. And he warns them not to take the best seat because that doesn't show humility. And they may end up being humiliated and go to the lowest place with shame. You see, this is still about the Sabbath. It's still about worship, we might say. It's using the same imagery. There's also imagery and verbiage connected to the marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation 19. You see, in this text, Jesus is telling us, That there is a feast, and the Lord, or someone, (laughs) sends out invitations. The Pharisees had received an invitation, but this is how they were responding. Jesus tells them who's invited. Everyone begins to take their seats. He encourages all who are invited to the feast to come in humility, lest they leave in humiliation. They were not to clamor over their place in the kingdom. They were not to cut anyone off from getting to their proper seat in the feast. Come with humility, count others as greater than yourself, and maybe you will receive the glory that is at the table. Hmm. Glory at the table. Did you notice how it comes? Verse 10, then you will have glory in the presence of those who sit at the table with you. How does it come? When you go and sit down in the lowest place, when you choose the path of humility. This really has nothing to do with seats in the church. It's about the heart. The heart is shown in how we, yes, treat others, but Jesus connects it to how we treat others on the Sabbath. There was no glory in the Sabbath meal hosted by the Pharisees because they lacked humility. They lacked humility. They could not even be bothered to care for a man with dropsy. And the ultimate conclusion to thinking like that, the heart that lacks humility and always chooses the best seat for yourself without regard for where others are, even if you are keeping them from the healing of Christ in his worship, where that heart leads is to a life of humiliation, a life of no glory at the table, and without love for the Savior. You see an image behind the image. An image behind the text, as it were, is the fact that Christ has come to remove all hindrances to the Father. He heals the body. He heals the soul. He fixes crooked teaching on the law. 
He fixes crooked teaching on the gospel. Woe to those who make crooked what God has made straight. And it's not I alone, but I echoing Christ. I say, whoever exalts himself will be humbled. But whoever humbles himself will be exalted. You see, the Lord Jesus was not forbidding the Pharisees from coming to him. He was exposing why they persisted in their rejection of him. They used the law as a yoke rather than a way to liberty in the spirit. They would not delight in the law in their inner man, as Paul says in Romans 7. They were always focused on exaltation, or let's call it self-comfort, rather than humility and counting others as greater than yourselves. They wanted recognition. Evidently, they wanted to be repaid because of what Jesus says in verses 12 to 14. They were not hospitable. They looked to negotiate and get ahead in the kingdom. Let's only feast with those who will turn around and invite us to their feasts. But Jesus would say once again, that is the opposite of humility. That is self-exaltation. What person who has the heart of Christ gives in order to get? Think about it for a moment. What person who has the heart of Christ gives in order to get? It is those who have lost the plot. Do we not give simply for the honor of Christ and sharing in his immeasurable generosity? The Father invites us to his feast. We are brought to him by his Son and filled with the Spirit to receive glory at the table and glory in the life to come. I ask you that, just like what Paul asked, what do we have that we did not receive? Why would we give in order to be repaid? You see, you can hear this entirely wrong. Because Christ does do a bit of a sleight of hand. He tells you that you will be repaid, but he also tells you when. And he wants you to look forward to it and use it as motivation to live humbly in generosity in this life. When will you be exalted? When will you be repaid? To put it more psychologically... When will it all make sense? At the resurrection of the just. Or at the last day when Christ comes again. As we will soon confess in the creed at the table. You see, Christians can give bountifully for two reasons. Christians can live with total humility as it relates to the Sabbath and everything else. We can live like that, with that humility, with bountiful giving for two reasons. One, we did not earn the invitation to the feast. What do you have that you did not receive? Two, we can never give more than we will receive in the life to come. I heard this put one way in the past. You cannot... Outgive God. 
And this relates not only to earthly meals that you host and earthly meals that you are invited to, it relates to the Sabbath. Because the worship of the church is the feast of God in this life that prepares us for the feast of God in the life to come. And we should strive to do nothing that would in any way inhibit anyone coming to the Lord's house on the day that his table is spread. You know, I wonder if part of the reason that we don't take the Sabbath more seriously is because we don't really take worship that serious. They're not really missing anything that they can't get in their personal Bible study that night at home. They're not really missing anything by being away from the fellowship of the saints. They're not really missing anything that they can't get on a recorded sermon by someone else. Dear friends of Christ, the glory that is promised is promised at the table in the presence of the one who sends out the invitations. The one who sends the invitations is the Lord and the table is in the church. Come, therefore, in humility with gladness and joy that the one who invited you might say, just as Jesus was compelling them to do, the one who invites you has the, has the, the grace and the love for you to say, friend, go up higher. Ascend up into heaven and commune with the saints and the Savior in the presence of the Father by the Spirit, because Christ has thrown off every hindrance that might prohibit you from coming to the table today. He has humbled himself even to the point of the death of the cross. He has been raised again on the third day. He has ascended into heaven. He has baptized you and promised you his spirit with the forgiveness of your sin. You see, a wonderful image about the incarnation is that Jesus came not just by the spirit. He came in the flesh to issue the invitation. He presents you with an invitation from heaven that he came to deliver in person. I beseech you to live in such a way that shows this Christ-like humility, knowing that it must show itself to others. I beseech you to come to the Lord's table, finding nourishment for your souls in the glory of his presence at the table. Serve him by loving those who can never repay you, even if they never know that you did it. For you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Amen. Let's pray. Our Lord.